Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Elizabeth Bick, former microbiome researcher who's turned her attention to scientific integrity. She searches her base on literature and looking for duplicated or falsified images. And she discusses these on her Twitter feed at Microbiome Digest with the hashtag Image Forensics. So I played a game, so it's called Image Forensics. That's the hashtag I'm using. So yeah, so they're, they're photos from scientific papers that have been published. And within each challenge, there is a duplication. So there's either uh, two panels that are the same. However, this important work is not without its problems. So I had I did shut down my Twitter a couple of times because it becomes very yeah, depressing if you only get it, uh, tweets like that. We speculate on what the reasons are behind some of the shocking fabrications and falsifications of science might be. I mean, the most common scenario is that all of us scientists feel some pressure to publish. Like when we're a postdoc or a graduate student, we sort of need to produce positive outcomes. And we also discussed the cultural differences between living in the USA, where she's currently based, and the Netherlands, where she's originally from. So from the very Dutch directness and perhaps rudeness to the super American politeness and, and uh, indirectness, that was a big change, yes. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today on The Microscopist, I'm joined by Elizabeth Bick of the Science Integrity Digest. Elizabeth, how are you today? I'm doing swell. How are you? No, I'm really good, thank you, and thank you for joining me today. This is, uh, for those just tuning in, this is going to be slightly different because this, this has shown another career direction, uh, and for reasons that I think will be really interesting to learn about how Elizabeth has moved her career into a completely different area, still very much science, but no longer in primary research. I think that would be right, Elizabeth? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I'm a microbiologist by training. Did, did my PhD in the Netherlands on uh, microbiology. Uh, then I worked in academia. I've worked in, um, uh, in a hospital. Then I moved to the US, worked in academia again, worked 15 years at Stanford. Then I worked two years in industry. And then uh, in the meantime, I got really interested in uh, science integrity, specifically plagiarism and manipulation of photos. And I realized I really enjoyed that. So I quit uh, in 2019. I quit my job and I am now a full time consultant, making my money by working for for publishers or for uh, universities. And I really enjoyed it. But it's a it's an interesting career change. Yes. So actually, just to go back, if you if you haven't seen Elizabeth on Twitter, do so, because <laughs> if you like, uh, oh gosh, Wordle or Sudoku's, mm-hmm. well, actually, I think there's a different scientific image or data challenge each day to try and find out why it's not right, as it were. And it's not always that easy to spot. Nope. I've had a look at some of them gone, oh, good grief. How on earth did someone pick that out to start with? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I played a game. So it's called Image Forensics. That's the hashtag I'm using. So yeah, so they're they're photos from scientific papers that have been published, and within each challenge there is a duplication. So there's either 
two panels that are the same, or there's an overlap between panels, or there's a panel that has duplicated elements. So duplicated cells or duplicated gel bands, things like that. And the first person who, who gets the, the answer right, who, who points out where the duplication is, they can earn, earn an emoji medal. And, and people love it when they get that. <laughs> They're all like, oh, it's my first medal, thank you. And sometimes I hand out two or three because you know, some person might just say where it is and other persons have beautiful illustrations. So I'm always very generous. So sometimes there's two or three medals to be won. But people enjoy playing that game. Yeah, so it is scientific wordle, sort of. <laughs> so we will come back to how you got there in a moment. You, you said that this is now your career. And uh, from the consultancy side for journals and so forth, are journals paying you to help them identify these things, to rate through past data, to bring it up to spec, as it were? It, it seems like a, a difficult career to, to forge out. It's, it's difficult for several reasons. So, so first of all, I don't do a lot of consulting. So I actually get most of my income through Patreon, which is like a site where people can uh, donate small amounts of money uh, monthly to support an artist or a writer or somebody like me who, who fights the good cause. And, and so people support that. Um, but I do occasionally consulting work. So um, that might, for example, be uh, either a university or a publisher who has received allegations of misconduct and wants to have an expert look at that case. So I specialize in images, in photos. So for example, that university or that publisher might have gotten, might have written to the authors and might have gotten original photos and then needs to compare those photos, which are of, often heavily cropped for a scientific publication so they need a person to look at the cropped images versus the original images and see if they are the same. And so I can do that. I see these duplications by eye. And uh, sometimes authors send in photos that are not original in, a, in a, maybe an effort to mislead the journal or the, the publisher. And so I, uh, yeah, I work then on an occasional basis. But of course, if I've found images myself and, and wrote uh, to, the, to the publisher, I cannot be the second opinion on my own cases. I can only take cases that have were brought in by other people. I'm just thinking about the popularity of this because obviously this is you're now doing this forensic detective work. Uh, for mm -hmm. the, do is this blind when you're doing it for the journals? Are the people aware of who's looking at it, or is it just in confidence at that point? Uh, sometimes it's in confidence. Uh, I'll leave that up to the, the journals. I'm usually fine if my name is uh, brought out. Sometimes that actually lends more credibility to a case. Um, but I usually make a report uh, and I ask, do you want my name on it or not? Uh, and I'll leave that up to, to the customer, the client. And I, I'm, I'm just trying to think about it. If your name's out there, has it ever gone into a court of law? That this evidence has been brought up that you're having to you know say no no this is this is wrong this is false has actually actually stood up and said no 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 you're wrong i haven't falsified my data um i haven't been in court yet <laughs> that might happen at some point because obviously the work i'm doing is not making me popular i criticize other people's work and i might indirectly accuse a person of misconduct so yes people are not happy with that but there are two threats of lawsuits that I uh, am currently or currently have, which have not led to anything really scary yet, but they are still still scary for me because I'm not backed up by 
by a university. I'm not employed. And so this work could financially ruin me in the end. I might be 100% right, but if a person decides to sue me and I have to defend myself, especially living in the US, these things are <laughs> pretty expensive. And so, but I'm willing to take that risk. So I have two, two sort of, yeah, threats of lawsuits. And, and one of them is more serious than the other. That is from a professor in France who, whose work I've criticized. He was actually the person who, who claimed that hydroxychloroquine uh, was good in, for treating COVID-19 patients. So this was very early in the pandemic. He claimed he had a paper with a small amount of patients and, and that paper had serious flaws. So I wrote a whole blog post about it, criticizing it. And then I found other problems in, in that lab's papers, many other problems. And I, I posted all of them online on, on a site called Peer. And every time you post something, the, the author of that paper will get an email. So he claims I've been harassing him, uh, even called it cyber harassing uh, him because he's, he's gotten like 90 emails through the system from papers that I've criticized. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that's cyber harassment, but you know, this is up to a judge to, uh, to decide. And so far it's only been a threat of a legal case. I haven't had any official complaint yet. So I think he's just trying to silence me by trying to uh, yeah, make, make it a very serious case, threatening me. But so far I, I didn't let that silence me. And I find it, <laughs> There's a bit that puzzles me for universities behind him. I, I presume this is the university, the, the institute. I presume the institute mm -hmm. is supporting his th this process he's going through. But surely they would have looked at the data, and if, if it's that they will know it's not accurate at that point. Well, this person is the director of that institute, and he is he's a very powerful person. He puts his name in every paper that comes out from the institute, which is not according to the rules of scientific authorship. You should be, have been actively involved in, 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 in and writing the paper and stuff like that. And I think he just puts his name out there, but he's, yeah, he's like a very powerful person at that institution. So basically he's been approving this legal case for himself, I assume. And he's also, um, uh, there were also many issues with ethical approval in his papers where, for example, the, you know, there's strict rules about doing research on humans. You have yeah. to have ethical approval. And in France, you cannot, your own institution cannot give that approval. And I think that's a very good rule because of course he's approving his own research, but there are independent institutions in France that should approve these things. And many of his papers don't have the, the ethical approval from that independent institution, just from his own institution. So he's, he's sort of playing uh, by his own rules and not following the official rules of ethical research on humans in France. And, uh, and that's one of the criticism I had. And I think that's a very legit criticism, but yeah, he's just threatening me with a, with a lawsuit. Well, I, I, I just gotta say, same in the UK, you, know, you have to have a human tissue right. agreement license to work with it. And that comes from an external, uh, essentially government body to right. work. Yeah, and yeah. And that's- Collaborating with someone to get it at the moment, we, one of our biggest difficulties is getting human tissues to come into our lab to use some technology we have and then pass straight back to the user. Still, the paperwork involved is quite long and our, certainly our local university must know about it because they have to have full oversight, but also it has to go through the other sides as well. So there are lots of things in place. How stressful are you finding this? I, I would be really, even if you know you've got 
that you know the, 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 the you can evidence everything so you, everything should be okay but it must be very stressful though it is stressful yeah i mean i i've had many sleepless nights <laughs> but but also i i sort of have to remind myself if i criticize another person for example for uh, apparent lack of approval uh, for human research the author could easily resolve that by saying, oh, yeah, we didn't put it in a paper, but here's proof that we actually got ethical approval from yeah. the correct authorities. And I would love it if authors can take away my concerns by proving that I was wrong. But if an author immediately threatens with legal language, that tells me there's no real answer and I might actually be right. And luckily, I have the support of, of the pretty much the whole scientific community. So when I was threatened with that legal case by the French doctor, there was an outpour of support for me. There were several people who started petitions to uh, collect signatures uh, to help me. And I just know I'm 100% I'm right. And, and hopefully I will get financial support and moral support uh, for sure from the scientific community. And that has strengthened me to, to keep on doing this and, and not step away uh, I sort of picture myself, this guy yelling at me and I'm like standing in front of him and not not taking a step back. And um, because I, I know I'm right in having the right to to raise concerns about these things. Do you regret going into this 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 direction of work? Because you, you, you had a very successful research career going. Do, do, do you re is, there, is there a moment you thought, gosh, I wish I'd just stayed in research, pure research. No, 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 no. I, I, I really, really enjoy what I'm doing now. So I love doing research. Um, and then, you know, as you get older, you're sort of moving away from the bench. I think that's a normal thing because these these tubes get, you know, the letters become smaller, right? Almost like <laughs> getting older, you get a reader. Uh, you know, as, as a researcher, you crawl on the tables and you, you know, you, you MacGyver things back in order. And I enjoyed all of that. But as you get older, it is a little bit more challenging to do that. So you sort of grow into a more uh, manager or project manager or type of role. And I uh, didn't quite enjoy that. Um, but I enjoyed things like writing and, and, and editing and peer reviewing for sure. And, um, but there was a moment when, so I was work, working at um, an, in an industry job only for three months. And I realized that was not, you know, the, the, the company was fantastic. It was just not the quite the right role for me. And I realized one day at a dinner party where I was explaining about my regular work, my paid job, and then my work as, you know, a science detective. And I realized, wait, I'm talking way more enthusiastic about my science detective, detective hobby than about my real work. And maybe I should just do that and, and quit my job. So pretty wow. much the next day I quit my job and, uh, you know, gave my notice and everything. But yeah, I, I just uh, felt I, I, I would be much more useful for science as an independent person because it's much easier to criticize other people when you don't have a boss who tells you to, to not do that. So I, uh, I like doing this uh, and being independent. I've got to say that must have been a, a giant step because again, the funding isn't sound. It's not safe, it's right. not secure. Uh, I guess now the, the, the patronage, you know, it's called the, the, the format. The patron, have. yeah, the patron, yeah. I guess de-risks it if you've got lots and lots, then I guess it, it, it's not so dependent on, on any one individual or any one funder, as it were. But that's a giant step. It is. And yeah, but but having worked in industry, I also had a little bit of a financial buffer. So 
I knew I could quit my job and have about, let's say a year, you know, where I wouldn't have to worry financially. And so, uh, and then in the meantime, the consultancy work picked up and uh, the, the Patreon support picked up. And so, yeah, right now it's completely sustainable. So it's, uh, yeah, I earn enough. I also ask money when I give a talk, when I get an invitation. So uh, usually the organizing committee, the, 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 yeah, the, the symposium or, or the university that wants me to give a talk about science integrity will pay for that. So, so I get honoraria and, and reimbursement for money for uh, travel. So it all works out well, but yeah, it was a bit of a risk, but uh, yeah, having worked in industry that, you know, like you don't earn much in academia, but in industry, at least I had a, a nice income for, for three years in total. So I had built up a little bit of a buffer to, to do that. I'm just thinking it'd be great to have as a seminar speaker, actually, because just, just what you can learn from it all. So I'm going to, I'm just going to go back in time. We'll come back to the science integrity side. What got you interested in science to start with? Uh, I, I just love uh, when I was eight or nine or so. Um, I, I don't know. I just was, had an interest in biology. That was, you know, you, you sort of uh, are at that age, like learning a little bit about the world. And I, I enjoyed biology classes in, in elementary school, you know, very rudimentary, but I enjoy watching birds in my backyard. So with, with the binoculars, I uh, watch birds. So at that age already, I sort of felt I want to become a biologist. Had, of course, no idea what that really meant, but um, that sounded really cool. Not not particularly interested in science, but just biology, like like the 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 wonder of life like what is life what is a life form like how how are we alive how are birds alive how are animals and plants alive and uh i think that was just and and still is a mystery to me like what is what is life in its pure form what defines that and so i um yeah i i at around eight years old i wanted to become a biologist and i sort of uh, was interested in birds but as i really started college i realized I didn't really care much about birds anymore, but I really thought that microbiology was cool. And of course, all these things depend not just on your own interest, but also teachers. I feel that if you have a particular teacher uh, or even in college, like a particular professor who, uh, who's, who's really good at their you know, teaching, that could spark your interest. And um, I happen to have a wonderful microbiology teacher and I enjoyed those classes. I enjoyed the the practical things like being in the lab and pouring petri dishes and like the smell of bacteria, which grossed a lot of people out, but I sort of thought this is really cool. Like we, we cannot see these little tiny organisms, but we can still see them by doing molecular biology and, and looking under the microscope and molecular biology was on the rise and DNA and it was just all wonderful. And so you sort of roll into it. I didn't really have a, a good plan to become a scientist. But I, I I enjoyed the lab work at that time really a lot and yeah. So when so you went to university did uh, I presume in the Netherlands your undergraduate? Yes. Yeah, Utrecht University. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, I was meant to be in that's where I was meant to be a couple of weeks ago. I was over in Utrecht, but I couldn't get there. <laughs> uh, and well, then your PhD was in? Uh, it was microbiology, so it was uh, on cholera. So um, cholera obviously is a, a nasty disease uh, that develops in. Uh, usually like bad hygienic circumstances. So, you know, like um, refugee camps, for example, there's, there's can be often cholera outbreaks. So it gets transmitted through the fecal oral roots. You know, you ingest a couple of cholera bacteria and that can make 
person really sick and they can die within 24 hours basically of massive diarrhea and uh so there was a new outbreak in bangladesh um that was caused by a cholera strain that was a very novel strain that nobody had heard of and so i did some genetic uh, analysis of that and this was in you know 1995 very big sequencing project. Everything was like manual with radioactive stuff and films and uh, things went much slower than they, they would do today. But um, yeah, still was a exciting time. So we, we did genetic uh, analysis of this new strain and compared it to old strains, things like that. So it was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was my PhD. And then I sort of, yeah, kept on working in microbiology since. And then you headed to the States. Yeah, I moved to the States in 2001, just after September 11, another strange time to be moving. But uh, my my husband basically had been offered a job there and I moved with him and I found a job at Stanford University and worked there for 15 years. Still microbiology, but not working on the bacteria that make us sick, but the bacteria that live inside our bodies, the, the human microbiome. So we're home to all these communities of little invisible creatures and uh, they help us digest our food and, and and play roles in our health that are still you know many years later not quite well understood but these huge communities uh that live inside of us are are just fascinating to study and so we we spend a lot of time on that and then later i studied dolphin microbiomes which was also very, very cool, cool because who doesn't love dolphins right <laughs> so i worked on um that was a project for the u.s navy so the U.S. Navy turned out to to sort of um, manage this group of dolphins in San Diego. And I think by now the dolphins have been retired, but it's similar to sniffing dogs, right? Like it's animals being used because they have some unique capacity yeah. and, and they can dolphins can make these deep dives. And so what they were trained to do is find underwater mines that were left in wartime situations, similar to cleanup of landmines. They were being used to clean up of sea mines that, you know, if a ship touches one of these, it can explode. So they were trained not to deactivate them. Obviously, they don't have hands to, to do that, but to find them, to make a deep dive, report back to a human diver. Yes, we found one. And then a human team can deactivate these, uh, these, these mines. So thinking about moving over from, to the U.S., how did you find the, the, the change, the challenge of going from the Utrecht over to Stanford? to us yeah it's, it's it's you know that it's a big change like just moving to a different country is already uh you know there's a lot of things you need to do like get your driver's license again and and social security number and open bank accounts and get new phones and and yeah all this buy a house you know a lot of change but of course also a change in in culture like there's the way uh people interact with each other in in the U.S. is is quite different. Like they do a lot of this small talk, and they're very polite. And you have to, in the beginning, I had no idea if you go to a supermarket and you you were you know checking out, and the the cashier would say something like, "Hey, how are you today?" And I had just no idea. Like, are they interested in my well being? Like that seemed very weird. Like you have to sort of learn how to respond back to that. And no, it's you know it's like polite little exchange and then it's also over like you don't really connect with people but it's it still leaves a smile on your face if you say something nice back and forth and um and in the lab it was also very different it felt much more 
individualistic. People were more working for themselves and not helping a newcomer like me in the lab that much. It was more like, okay, here's your bench. Um, you know, here's your project. Uh, enjoy. And um, I tried to install little Dutch things like a coffee break at 10 o'clock. I tried to install that and uh, was sometimes successful in sort of building up a little bit of a social community. But then, um, yeah, I was always regarded uh, slightly strange to have a coffee break at a set time with a big group of people. But that was really a Dutch thing. But I tried to install that uh, and it worked for a couple of years. Okay, like I said, no, my facility, they, they definitely, like the larger facility definitely used to be known for their coffee breaks. I'm not sure that was a bad thing at times. Uh, but yeah, that's for sure. It's certainly good for the team as building aspect. Yes. yes, yeah. And yeah, I think small talk is very popular in the UK, certainly outside of London. If you walked mm. into a shop, you'd say morning or hello, you know, right. that's the time of day. But you're right. I, I, I spend a lot of holidays in the Netherlands and it is far more abrupt. Direct. Yes, direct. It is. Direct. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Dutch people are very blunt and... Uh, potentially considered rude um and so yeah so so from the very dutch directness and perhaps rudeness to the super american politeness and and um indirectness that was a big change yeah so i uh i think my dutch background also makes me very good in criticizing other people's work because that's sort of what dutch people love to do and and now that i've lived more than 20 years in the us and i go back to the netherlands I have to get used again to the to the yeah almost rudeness where people say oh you you gained like twenty pounds uh, oh that like you would not really say that in, in the US <laughs> but it's like direct or oh you're gray now you have gray hair okay great yeah so yeah you people are super direct and you um, you have to get used to that again even if I'm Dutch but uh, I've lived too long in the US now no I, I remember why I I got a really good Dutch. A friend or couple now actually got married recently and I remember when they came over to visit us for the first time my wife hadn't met Ben properly and it was like you know he's like make me a coffee now <laughs> it was just like give me a coffee yeah he's telling the same please could I have a coffee it was just that right time. exactly yeah the word please is not always <laughs> included in our standard in our vocabulary yes and she, was, she, was, she was just taken aback she was like this is but yeah but, but she was bent a bit when, when she realized just the language that you absolutely love bent a bit it's just getting to understand that cultural difference as you say and yeah when you go right. to the US, realize they're not really interesting i guess it's a starbucks thing isn't it you give your name over uh or give your okay. starbucks name at the start. i know i was shocked like like why why does they why do they need to know my name <laughs> and then you real like the first time you have no idea why do they need no i just want my coffee like they don't need my name but then you realize it doesn't have to be your real name it's your starbucks name so yeah i'm liz usually <laughs> that's my that was a bad to ask what is your starbucks <laughs> name <laughs> it's liz yeah <laughs> yeah no I, I no i just stick to pete if i gave a different name i'd forget it <laughs> away <laughs> then no, yeah, it's, out and i wouldn't know it's for me I know. I was like, oh, <laughs> Gerald. Okay. So just going back to science, what, what got you into the science integrity? Well, it's um, sort of a long story, but um, at one day, and I quite, I don't quite remember what the exact um, thing was, but I was reading or, or hearing a podcast or something about plagiarism and, and science integrity. And I'm like, oh, plagiarism, that's not good, obviously. I wonder if somebody ever stole a sentence I had written. So I had written a couple of years previously, I'd written this review paper. I'm like, okay, about the human microbiome. So 
I thought, okay, let's just take a sentence that, that I had written between quotes in, and put it into Google Scholar and only my own paper should come up. But it didn't, like another paper came up, actually two other papers, but written by the same persons. And so somebody had stolen my sentence a couple of years after I had published my paper. And that made me mad, <laughs> right? Somebody had stolen my paper. And so the work I'm doing is still uh, tapping from that anger that I felt back then. So I was angry that somebody had stolen my sentence. I looked into more detail and that the whole paper was sort of a, uh, a Frankenstein monster of stolen sentences, not just from my paper, but from a lot of other papers. And then by another coincidence, about a year later, so I worked a lot on plagiarism, found many papers. One, one paper led to another because sometimes some sentences were stolen by multiple uh, other people. And so it became this hairball of, of, you know, you pull one hair and you get like many other hairs. Um, and after a while, I found a PhD thesis by accident that also had plagiarism, but it also had chapters with research topics and, and images and photos. And I flipped through it, just flipped through the PDF. And I found this one image that had been reused three times. So one time it was used and then it was like uh, rotated a little bit and used for another experiment. And then the third time it was like completely rotated and used for a third experiment. So it was the same blot being used for three different experiments. And it had a very characteristic little uh, spot or stain on it that I recognized. But it was, these papers had been in the PhD thesis, but also been published as scientific papers. So I wrote to the editor saying, hey, this is wrong. And the papers got pretty quickly retracted. And so this motivated me to just that evening, let's, let's if I find these things and other people didn't see it. These papers have been peer-reviewed and published and, you know, being cited by others. Maybe I have a talent for spotting duplicated images. And just for fun, let's just open up, you know, 100 papers from one particular journal that is open access and just look if I find more of these examples. And sure enough, enough that evening I found more examples. And so I thought, well, this is a whole thing that nobody realized. Like there's, like we should look at these images in a slightly better way. And, and because it's, could be an honest error, but in many cases, especially when you rotate an image and flip it or whatever, yeah. that is a sign of a intention to mislead. And so we should we should be looking at these things and we should be uh, correcting them. But out of the 100 random ones that you picked out, how many had problems? I don't remember that. I've been asked that question before. I didn't keep track of that specific set, but uh, let's say one or between one to five, because over a set of 20,000 that I did later, it was 4%. Wow. That's so one in 25, one in 25. This <clears throat> is of papers that had photographic images. So I did a specific textual search for the term Western blot, which will bring up papers that are, um, uh, have molecular biology techniques. So it might also, they might also contain microscopy photos or, uh, photos of uh, a mouse or, or protein blots or DNA gels and things like that, but they had to have at least one photo. So I didn't, I specified it, I specifically looked for, uh, for photographic images. And that was one in 24 that had problems. And this was over a range of 40 different journals and 20,000 different papers. Do, do the journals now have better software for picking this out? Um, some do, some starting to, to test this by, by um, software. So most journals will use 
plagiarism detection. So that's for textual similarities. So basically that software will check a manuscript's test and, uh, text and uh, compare it to all other papers that have ever been written. And so to do that for images is, is computationally much more, in, uh, much more difficult than for text, as you can imagine. And so it's, there is software being developed and there are a couple of packages. I don't have access to almost you know, all of these packages, so I, I can only have access to one. But uh, publishers are getting interested more and more in testing these software and um, yeah, calling out uh, image duplication. But it's, um, it still needs human interpretation. So I detect these things mainly by eye. Uh, that set of 20,000, I detected all of them by eye. Uh, so I found yeah, 800 papers in that set. Uh, but I'm starting to use one particular uh, image package more and more. And that is uh, pretty good in, in finding duplications but sometimes it completely misses them. You need still need a human to interpret the results. There's some false positives. For example, in microscopy um, images, you 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 sometimes have you know in, in uh, confocal uh, microscopy, yep. you you might have you know a red signal, a green signal, which is like a different antibody, and then a merged image to show if these things are at the same position in the cell, for example. And, and those things. Yeah, those, so the merged image usually contains or does contain elements of, of both of these channels. And so the software will, will, will call these duplicates, but they're false positives. Like, like a, as a human, I can ignore them. I know these are supposed to be the same, uh, but the software will not really know that. And so that, those are all like improvements we need to make in the next generation of this software. But it's, uh, you still need a human to disregard those similarities. Now, yeah, I can imagine for my microscopy images, if you are uh, not just to rotate, but to actually flip and rotate, right. it, it would make the, the challenge of identifying it much more challenging. Right. Yeah. The, the anomalies. Oh, well, actually, if you reinterpolate it as well, so then your pixels are reinvented, that would also make it more challenging because even your outlines would take a slightly different form and shape. Right, right. And, and yeah, like sometimes I have seen images that are very similar, but they have, for example, a different focal plane. And mm -hmm. then images can look quite different if you like that's usually not picked up by the software, but I, I just see it. And then it's hard because I see it and then people say, but the software didn't pick it up. So you're, you're incorrect. I'm like, well, my eyes pick it up. And, you know, I, <laughs> I think the human eye brain combination is still quite powerful. But it's hard sometimes to be believed if the software doesn't see it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's just incredible that that it that it that it happens. So, I I, I know I give one lecture uh, for, for a lot of the courses that we teach on the to, for both confocal microscopy and flow cytometry, and it and it highlights fraudulent data uh, mm -hmm. that was picked out some years ago, not to show don't don't do it, but to teach them what might have been the motivation. To, to, to remind them the quality of the data and record keeping is really important, but it'd be good to hear what your thought, you know, what, what do you think are the main drivers in many of these cases, why people have actually gone to the effort to be fraudulent or not gone to the effort to do the experiment? What, I'm not sure. Yeah, go on, you, you, what, what are your thoughts on this front? Uh, yeah, so I have a couple of scenarios in mind. So, so, I mean, the most common scenario is that all of us scientists, feel some pressure to publish. Like when we're a postdoc or a graduate student, we sort of need to produce positive outcomes. And 
a negative outcome, unfortunately, is still not regarded as a publishable unit in uh, in you know general scientific world. It it should be different, but that's that's the way it is. And and so if we if we don't get positive results and we have a certain hypothesis, it is tempting to produce some result or, or fabricate or, or or you know enhance our data a little bit to make it look better. Um, so that's sort of a, a general scenario, and I feel a lot of us are are uh you know feel that pressure but but it's only a couple of people hopefully that will then actually start to cheat but in some countries there's very strong uh pressure to publish um and i'm specifically mentioning russia and china which are two countries that have a have a very strong monetary and career incentives with, that are much more stronger than in european uh, countries or, or northern american countries so for example in china when you're a medical doctor you need to publish a paper in order to get a position at a clinical hospital, which is you know, your next phase of career when you finish medical school. But medical doctors are not necessarily researchers and, and most of them are interested in curing patients, helping patients, treating patients, but not doing research. And so if you ask those folks or if you require those folks to do a research paper, they just have no, no clue, they don't have time, they you know, work long shifts and stuff and they don't work in a research facility and so what they'll do is they will buy a paper that is offered to them they will buy an authorship they will invest some money and these papers are fabricated we believe these are so we call these paper mills they're they're sort of organizations that sell fake papers to the authors who need them and these papers are probably completely made up the authors don't really care they don't care about science and the pollution of science with these things so they they buy an authorship and so that's that's a big uh, th current threat. But there's also individual cases. So another scenario that I'm thinking sometimes of is that of a very successful early career scientist, like a graduate student or a postdoc who has made a beautiful discovery and published in Nature or Science or won an award, won, you know, was on national television or radio and talked about the research. And they, they tasted this success. And we know that success is addictive. And, and now this person moves on to uh, maybe become a professor and has a slightly different career focus and, and the research doesn't work as well. And I feel once you have tasted this success, you want to fulfill you know, all the, 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 yeah, the, the requirements that you, you, yeah, you sort of want to keep up your, your game. And so you might be tempted then to tweak your results a little bit. And the third scenario or fourth scenario is that of a person who um, is early career scientist and who works in a lab with a bully as a professor, like a professor who has very strong uh, feelings of how the results should be, but also has a lot of power over that graduate students. And we all feel this hierarchy, of course, in academia, we're very dependent on on the senior persons to give us our letter of recommendation. This is, for example, very strong in the US. And uh, if this person, this young person is on a visa, on a work permit, then if in the US, for example, if you get fired by your professor, that means your, your visa immediately ends, like you don't have a sponsor anymore and you have to leave the US within five days. And that's a big, especially if you, have, you come to the US and do research and you have a family, a young family, you suddenly have to move out, out of the country back to your home country you can feel that's a huge threat if the professor not might not specifically ask 
you know, Photoshop this image to get this result, but might say, I want these results by Friday. Otherwise I'll find another graduate student or another postdoc. That's a big threat. And so I feel this, this power play is, is a very important scenario that can lead people to do misconduct, even though they don't, didn't really want to, but they, they feel they need to. Now, I, took, so I, I would add to that. I think the two, two others that certainly I've considered for one of the cases I highlight was perhaps a, the, 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 the boss of the lab at the time. Right. When they published the paperwork or put it, submitted it, the referees may have come back asking for evidence of one of the tables that they submitted. And when they look back at the data uh, to find the raw data, they couldn't because mm. the your postdoc had left. Right. That's not left good documented records, which means they had to repeat the data. Mm-hmm. And although they knew what the data was going to come out with and had confidence in their, their staff or students, mm-hmm. because the reagents cost a lot of money or getting the actual cells to culture or the, the, the human cells can be difficult. Actually, right. just getting two data sets could have, and not all the controls because they know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then massage the controls from the control data because it would it should have looked the same in the original experiment. I wonder if that's a motivation through a bad record keeping or even right. the quality of the data that the postdoc or PhD did in the original case. It's good enough to analyze, mm-hmm. but never display because it was a bit, uh, yeah, not really up to standard. Right. A bit messy, like a, a crack yeah. or a yes stain. Yeah. No, I think those are, are very valid scenarios. And the, the three I usually I, that I just gave, those are the, the three I give in my talk, but they're just scenarios. And there, there's probably many reasons that can drive people to to either fabricate or, or falsify their results. And and I think it's important to have these scenarios in mind because it's very easy to point fingers and say you do misconduct. And you know that paper, you're guilty. Um, you know you should be fired. Uh, but it's it's very often not quite clear which of the authors was responsible for the photoshopping or the fabrication or whatever. And and I want to be respectful for all of the authors. Uh, I'm not respectful for the, for photoshopping, uh, but I don't want to. I usually don't call out people. I call out the figures when I play this game on Twitter. Yeah. I try to remove labels i i'm sometimes a little bit lazy but i i don't say which paper i don't say which author it is i do make some exceptions but sometimes it's just too too horrible and it's very clear because it's a set of papers who who the you know where where the problem lies but it's uh yeah it's it, it's often the the senior person i feel who has the most responsibility but there's a human sad story behind each one of these cases and and that is something to it's really important to keep that in mind uh, to remain polite and to remain, you know, worried about the, the the problems, but not pointing fingers too much at particular persons. Yeah, and so you're right. I think the pressure. I think the the pressure to succeed, even as a PhD. You know, if you want to go and do your postdoc, you need a good publication. If you're going to be a postdoc to a lectureship, you need those good publications. To go from a lecture to press, you need even more higher impacting publications. It does put pressure to get the stellar data. That may be just very difficult to come out. Uh, you know, it's crazy. I, I think there is a lot of luck in some people's science career. There you know, is. It's not just yeah. skills, there is a lot of luck also needed, which makes it a, a difficult world to live in. You you mentioned uh, that you put it on Twitter and you get your detractors. I, I think you mentioned before we started that you get not, hate mail is probably not the right word, but certainly a lot of uh, hate abuse. <laughs> <laughs> over Twitter. 
Uh, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, you sort of develop a thicker skin. I don't didn't don't really have a thick skin to, to start with, but um, yeah, I mean, the 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 unkind messages, I, as I usually call them, get worse and worse. But you also develop some yeah immunity to it. Um, and again, like it's when I when I get these things, it means there's no real answers by the authors. And and some authors just have a large group of fans. So the French professor I mentioned earlier has million a million followers on Twitter. Wow. And our, every one of his YouTube videos in which he sometimes has called out me by name, he, uh, you know, sort of, he has millions of views within hours of posting these videos. And so when he specifically mentions me, uh, and say that I am harassing him, it's basically an invitation to his followers to then harass me. So he doesn't harass me myself, but like then after one of those videos, uh, after several of these videos, I had to put my Twitter to private because I was just getting, you know, every second uh, pretty much uh, a hate or, or an unkind message saying like, uh, you're a fraud, you belong in jail, uh, images of, of people in jail, um, you know, the striped uh, suit will will suit you well, or like you look horrible, you are ugly, you're a fat pig, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, it's not very, it's not, it's a bit yeah. tough, isn't it? Yeah, but it, you know, yeah. there's no scientific argument here. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, so I had, I did shut down my Twitter a couple of times because it becomes very, yeah, depressing if you only get images, uh, 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 tweets like that. And I might have, you know, a lot of followers, but they usually don't really, uh, you know, attack my attackers. They, they, they sort of take a step back and might send me a direct message of support. But yeah, there, there's, there's sometimes little support from my Twitter followers, unfortunately, but it, that's how Twitter is. Obviously I could easily avoid it by not being on Twitter, but <laughs> you know, you keep on coming back because I do feel social media has some power in it. And I, um, you know, it's, it is a place to organize people and to to express our disappointment or our um, uh, anger with with certain things, and uh, so I'm not gonna stop with Twitter. But yeah, there were definitely some. I cried sometimes when you get these things, and it's um, yeah. There's I mean, there, and it's not just Twitter. There's there's whole YouTube videos made about me. There's Reddit posts where wow. people try to. Uh, discredit me and and so yeah so it's it's fans of scientists there's currently also a group of fans from a particular company that is um, on the Nasdaq uh, stock market or how do you call that like so there's there's stockholders who have lost money because there was a discussion on, on uh, images from particular papers from associated with this uh, uh, particular company and so yeah the company has a lot of fans or like stockholders and and they're yeah harassing me as well. <clears throat> it, it, it's it's really difficult to comprehend. I, I think when you get people saying something on Twitter, it, it's you know you know it's not personal. They don't know you personally. It's no, just no. just you know <clears throat> dust it off. I'm very much that sort of person. It's like you know names, but you don't know me. It's not you know, if you did know me, but no. I think that it, as you say, it gets much more difficult with the volume and the and the, the breadth of ways that they're attacking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, has anyone actually come up to you and, <laughs> uh, you know, directly and sort of said anything to you? Or... 
No, luckily not. I mean, luckily, uh, there's, uh, you know, there's sometimes an ocean between me and those, those people. So that's good. But it's, uh, no, it's not personal. I mean, these are just, I guess, you know, unpolite people on Twitter who follow their leader. Um, but yeah, I'm worried sometimes about my personal safety. So I have become a little bit less open on where I live. And uh, I've been doxxed some, so, you know, you one could look up my home address, obviously, and, and post that, but that has happened. And yeah, so I have been worried about my personal safety and um, uh, taken some precautions about that. But um, it's, yeah, I'm just worried that somebody indeed will come up to me and, uh, I don't know, throw something in my face. And I hope it's a cake, but not, uh, you know, a rock. <laughs> but it's uh, so far the people who have really come up to me at conferences are are nice people. They say, I follow you on Twitter and, and yay, and you do great things. So that's that's lovely. And and if you hear lots of that, that that definitely balances out the, the negative things. But there's just days on Twitter where there's, you know, 100 unkind messages and just one uh, tweet of support and and that that eats on you eventually yes i guess that sums up the the science community though is in, in <laughs> you know as you said you get the direct messages of support because mm-hmm. you know we, we go online certainly my twitter account is more about the science it's not about personal opinions you know if you look at your site it's, you're putting in information you're not necessarily putting opinions on there you're just putting information mm-hmm. when someone puts a comment that's that that's an emotion so it, generally professionals within it don't don't interact with that, but they'll do the DMs of support so behind the scenes. Right. I right. guess it doesn't show that those people are in the minority that are attacking, which which makes it harder. I've got to ask if it's to be any I, I, I shouldn't I'm not encouraging this in any way. But if it was a cake that was thrown in your face, what would be your cake of choice? <laughs> uh, a mocha cake <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I love like mocha, mocha, like coffee, coffee cake, uh, something with uh, lots of cream <laughs> and nuts or so. Yeah, yes. Coffee and taste good at the same yes. time. Yeah. But please, I'm not encouraging that at all. <laughs> I like <laughs> marzipan too. I like marzipan. Yeah. And take it whilst it's a gift. <laughs> no, just send it to me. Don't throw it in my face, please. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's just a waste of a mocha cake. So thinking of these difficulties, stresses, what do you do outside of work to relax? Uh, I love gardening, so um, uh, and not not like the the little gardening. I love like you know pruning trees and and climbing in ladders, putting in sprinklers, digging holes, stuff like that. So um, I have a you know backyard, uh, and um, it is difficult actually to to garden in California because there's always you know we're, we're in a drought situation, so you cannot water as much as you want, and so. I'm sort of shifting towards plants that use less water because if you only can water twice uh, uh, twice a, a week as we are now, that's the current restrictions. So we can only run our sprinklers twice a week. Um, that means that you know a lot of plants cannot handle that. So uh, coming from Europe, I try to plant um, uh, hydrangeas and rhododendrons and stuff like that. And uh, but yeah, they don't really do well in this climate. So you have to sort of switch your gardening skills to a very different set of um of plants and so uh you know i'm now into succulents and love that so um and then i love to uh, swim and i uh so try to swim twice a week or three times okay. a week and i do uh bollywood cardio fitness which is uh sort of zumba yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah. basically dancing sweating out on music but it's bollywood music so from indian uh indian movies and it's it's a lot of fun a lot of good movements and a fun group of people and uh they don't really care about what you wear because I know some 
some cardio fitness groups are really into Lululemon, um, you know, whatever clothing, like it's very important that you wear the latest colors and, but yeah, no, this is fine. You can just do it in a, in a t-shirt and old comfy uh, pants and then uh, yeah, you're, you're good to go. So it's a lot of sweating, a lot of uh, fun and yelling and yeah, I love it. That, that, that does sound actually like really good fun. Like I said, that'd be something that would tempt me into uh, that type of exercise. Uh, and swimming, how far do you swim? Well, I'm not a good swimmer. I do like um, like 80 laps in an hour or so. Um, back and forth is two laps then. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I, there must be 25 meter, not 50 meter at that. It's a 25 meter, a 25 yard pool. Yeah. Yes. So it's yard. it's a little bit. Uh, it's, I think 25 yard is. I don't know. Is it like 23 meters? Yeah. 24 yeah. meters ish. Yeah. Yeah. Just just over 20. I think I do one kilometer. I think per hour. <laughs> it's it's yeah. when you say it like that, it's nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, so I was about to just criticize the fact that you're all using uh, Imperial. You, obviously, you're born up in metrics. You're now using Imperial, but actually, I then run in miles and I swim in meters until I get to the mile mark. Oh, and then it becomes a mile. <laughs> it well, it's just, I, I, can, I can put my Apple Watch in whatever. Um, you know, when I'm in the Netherlands, I swim in meters, but um, yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, here at least I have my personal lap and then in the Netherlands you have to swim in circles sometimes when it's busy and it's just uh, yeah nobody swims the exact same speed as I swim of course so it's it's yeah <laughs> you cannot swim as much as you want sometimes yeah no I, I fully understand that problem <laughs> I've got some quick fire questions would you say you're an early bird or a night owl oh a net night owl for sure yeah okay yes. uh, pc or mac mac Oh, McDonald's or Burger King? Oh, well, I'm not not a fan. I would say um, in and out Burger, but that's not okay. <laughs> the <laughs> habits. No, none of them are my, yeah, no, neither of them uh, are my favorite. What about if you were to eat out, what would be your favorite type of place to eat out? Like a, a little um, restaurant, like a little bit upscale um, with some romantic music and tablecloths and... Um, uh, you know some some good selection of uh, things you would normally not eat I really enjoy that you know two or three times a year but um, I also love um, uh, Vietnamese pho um, soup um, you know more like the the casual dining that's uh, like Asian a lot of Asian foods I, I really enjoy and there's lots of choices here uh, in the Bay Area where I live okay if you were to go on conference uh, what would be your food heaven what 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 food would you most love to have put in front of you during a conference like a lunch or so well it, it, at a conference it's a, okay you, you've been invited speaker somewhere right and quite often you'll get taken out for an evening that you, um, mm. you don't get a choice of where you're going you get put down quite often they'll have pre-selected the menu oh right what would be the ideal food to put down you think oh. brilliant um I, no i eat i eat a lot so um i love vegetables um occasionally some meat no I'm, I'm i'm an easy eater so okay so, if, if the host takes me out for dinner i just already enjoy that that's just uh, always lovely and what about the uh the opposite to that is there any particular food that was put in front thinking oh really i i will eat it i've got to eat it but i really <laughs> I wasn't eating it like, like i mean i wouldn't really like to eat uh, a brain or so but uh or eyeballs or so but uh yeah no i think most food you would get in a in a any restaurant i would i would enjoy eating okay anything as long as it's not too awful then yeah not not too, not too recognizable like like a, a th things like lobster i would also 
have uh, basically i have no idea how to get any anything edible out of that and uh so that's basically because i don't really know how to tackle that problem okay, and i would probably make a mess and, and you know when you are sitting with your host you will want to keep you know not having any splatters on your on your shirt or 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 on your host shirt yeah so yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> i would i would be too embarrassed to eat anything very messy okay i'll keep this simple though tea or coffee <laughs> uh that depends on the day time of day but uh coffee uh for in the morning for sure yes okay beer or wine wine red or white um that would depend on the temperature but usually red okay chocolate or cheese to go with it oh uh for wine that would be cheese okay and book or tv hmm tv ah. i don't read i don't, i barely read no, yeah. I'm similar. But I also barely watch TV. Like, uh, like, like I watch like one show, binge watch one show a year or so. so. I just sit behind my computer and do look at the images, and I really enjoy that. I, I remember talking to Richard Henderson, asking what his uh, TV vice was, and he scratched his head and he he, he came out with one. But and, and then told me about the whole series, so I've actually had to watch uh, quite a bit <laughs> of that now, just just because I said I would. What about yourself though? What do you have a a TV that? You, You've got to confess now, what is your TV show that you shouldn't really watch, but you quite like? Um, well, I just watched uh, the Apple TV series Severance, and I thought that was brilliant. Uh, that was just so unlike anything I'd ever seen. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I watched it in the in the plane, but uh, yeah, so it's uh, that was just good. But uh, I think, yeah, because we have an Apple TV subscription, we're all like Mac people, so we... Yeah. we uh, you know, we you watch what you you pay for or what you get, and so uh, I think a lot of the Apple TV series are brilliant and uh, enjoyed that. But I also enjoyed Game of Thrones, so I did watch binge watch that. Yeah, I, I think that can count as a vice more than anything else with Game <laughs> of Thrones. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite film? Oh gosh, oh you got me there. Um, have nothing that pops up. Um, okay, favorite Christmas film then. Oh, that's wouldn't know that. <laughs> I know that's a that's a US or UK thing, maybe like a Christmas film, but uh, um, okay. yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, how many years you've been in the US now? Uh, twenty. Yeah, no, but we're still <laughs> very Dutch. <laughs> but I I don't really watch that many movies or or TV series or so. I I, I mean I've seen a couple, but it can't. Don't, I don't even remember the names. Or uh, so. what's the one with the lamp? That was fun. Uh, is that a Christmas Carol or something? Where they get this lamp in the form of a foot uh, of a, a woman's leg, and and he's like frozen to the like one of his. It, it's like a, a small boy who uh, celebrates Christmas, and there's lots of snow in it. But I forgot it's the name. That's a Christmas one, I guess. It's a that's a Christmas one for sure. That was good. That was funny. Yes, I love. But I forgot the name recalling anything out of films i'm really bad at <laughs> and, and to be honest mostly most films are on an airplane on long call it's about the only time yeah, you really get yeah. to sit and actually enjoy a film properly <laughs> uh, <laughs> favorite music oh i love like um the faint or like like electro pop type of music um fisher spooner like like those are probably you have never heard of but that's like super electro pop uh, slash alternative loud <laughs> music. Favorite color? Blue. Oh, good choice. Yes. USA or Netherlands? 
Oh, I'm both. I'm both. I'm like a Dutch. I cannot. I cannot choose between. That. I see the good things of the U.S. and I see the good things of the Netherlands, and I can switch back and forth between them. Um, I don't know. If if I had to choose, like now, I would be living in the U.S. Yes. I was gonna say it was a trick question because obviously, yes. if you said the Netherlands, you'd have been kicked out. If you just said. <laughs> USA, you'd never have been let back into the No, Netherlands. no, no. I actually have two passports, so I can prove that I'm, a, you know, a citizen of both countries. Yes. <laughs> it's not difficult to have now in the Netherlands, two passports. That is very difficult, actually. So there's, there's, uh, you know, there's some exception rules that I apply to. And, uh, but in principle, the Netherlands doesn't allow dual citizenship. Yeah. Uh, I know the UK does and the, and the US also does. But um, in principle, if I, uh, once I turn the US citizen, you lose your Dutch citizenship unless you're married to a U.S. citizen. So what we did is that my husband turned to U.S. citizen first and I was still married to the same guy, but then I could apply for the exception rule. And, and so I do have two, two passports now. Okay. So I'm literally at the, you know, entering the Netherlands, like, which one do you want to see? I have two and they're always looking like uh, that, but uh, yeah, that's uh, totally fine. Okay. So going, going back into career-wise, the Science Integrity Digest, but you uh, you set up your baby, uh, but you also did the microbiome project digest. Sorry, microbiome digest was that That's also right. yours from inception? Yes, that was. So I I started microbiome digest much earlier. So that was when I was still in microbiology, and that's also my handle on on Twitter uh, without the e. But um, yeah, so I set that up. So I I was doing this uh, microbiome literature email first weekly and then uh, later daily to my coworkers, like, oh, here are some cool papers. I think this is a cool paper for you, Tom, or this is a cool paper for, for you. And, and sending those around. And then people said, oh, this is, you're, you're really picking up good papers. So maybe you should turn that into a blog and, and have other people uh, see that too. So I sort of, there were so many papers on the microbiome field coming out at that time. Uh, you needed somebody to curate that and sort of group it like this is for plant bio microbiologists or this is for soil microbiologists. So I did this um, sort of send around a daily uh, or made it into a blog and I bought microbiomedigest.com and set up a WordPress blog. It was all very easy and uh, did that on a daily basis, but it was starting to cost more and more time. So now it's being run by a team of volunteers, uh, which is getting smaller and smaller. So I think the, the blog will probably um you know phase out at some point because i i cannot pay these people but they're they're doing a wonderful job but you know as with any group of volunteers it's it's not going to last forever and uh there's other people who can curate papers as well so uh but it's been running for yeah i don't know seven years or so, eight years i think it's impressive that you know you have ideas but you don't just have the ideas you then make you bring them to fruition yeah that, that's yeah. a real skill uh, well, it also helps to have um, a Twitter account with, you know, a nice amount of followers. So when I needed, when I realized I couldn't do this anymore by myself because it was taking three hours of my time every day, I thought, okay, I need a team of people. And I just posted this on Twitter, like, hey, if you are interested in a, in a career of, let's say, science communication, or you just want to have this as a sort of a resume builder, or you want to uh, also write blog posts and learn that like I have a platform I'll have 500 views every day so it, it, it's a small group but it's 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 a, a you know, every day yeah that's that's still good and so those those volunteers joined uh, because of Twitter I just basically hired them them all and 
but unfortunately none of them has or almost none of them has ever written a blog post i thought it was also good for their career to you know offer them a platform that people would be reading their blog posts because people who are interested in science communication might use that as a yeah a jumping platform to to practice your writing skills you I mean you will all have to learn that and uh and it's it's it, it would be a nice uh environment uh i you know, was happy to offer feedback, but not many people actually took up on that. And they, uh, so they, they, they post the, the, well, it's supposed to be a daily post, but it's, I think now once or twice a week. So I, I think at some point it's, I, I would have to decide to, you know, to, to stop it, but uh, we'll, we'll see how long it goes. I think it's okay. still being watched 500 yeah. times a day. Maybe everything ha has a time, a moment in time, but right. I, right. I, th I think, you know, you, you've had the ideas and you said, yeah, thanks to your Twitter followers, you did it, but you, but you generally, you had the product to gain the Twitter following. Mm -hmm. so make, you know, yeah. you had yeah. to make that happen. It didn't, you don't just get Twitter followers. You had to uh, make yeah. <laughs> start with, you know, because they, ha you have to give, what you were doing is of interest. You know, it's a fact so, yeah. interest. And right. so people do follow because what you're saying, what you're putting out there is relevant. It's inf mm -hmm. informative, it's important. I think I think it's a really good lesson for people, certainly in the, the, the earlier starts of their career. In fact, even in the twilight of their career, I would say there's still an opportunity to have to develop your career through this type of work and right. supporting either there or if they see a different niche that isn't addressed mm -hmm. to go for it. And likewise, I guess if you're in your twilight of the career, you know, just because you may be retiring out of your academic post doesn't mean you can't stop contributing. Of side. course, yeah, right. And and social media are just a, a wonderful platform for that, of course, with all the caveats of the haters and the unkind tweets, but but it is it's a unique way of um of forming a group or finding your your uh you know people who think like you of um uh, of community and uh quickly spreading news or ideas or um creating a hashtag that suddenly has an impact like we've seen that with the me too movement where social media is just a, a great place where these movements start and um in the the olden days we we couldn't expose uh any type of misconduct or or behavior that we don't approve of that was just you know silently uh people were silently looking the other way but with social media that allows people to to unite and to take a stance against that and and um I hope I have contributed a little bit with, you know, the lack of responses of journals and institutions to to look at these cases, and um, and we've also seen that it was uh, I don't know people doing weird things in airplanes where just other people start filming it and it's like yeah that that guy is uh, hitting uh, a flight attendant or or that uh, woman is is shouting and like I don't know spitting on another person like like seeing these things in video and share having that shared on social media makes such more impact than just reading a line about it and um has helped people to realize that there's a problem we need to deal with that and so i hope i do that with science misconduct i, I have one more question we are actually i think up to the hour but i have i do have one more question which is you know, what was the best what's been the best sort of year in your career to date what's been the most fun time that you most enjoyed um, probably the first year that I, I quit my job and I could look at images almost full time without having to worry about doing stuff for my paid job, um, because I had all the freedom to work on whatever I want. 
I think nowadays with um, conferences started, that's also wonderful to talk about my work at conferences, but sometimes I feel it takes away from really what I do, what I love best, which is looking at scientific papers and reporting them massively. Um, so yeah, so far 2019, <laughs> I guess that's when I quit my job and uh, started doing this full time. Well, I, I hope it carries on being a huge success. I hope it grows and maybe even people start to join in and help and assist. They do. They do. Yeah. I, uh, I think those little challenges that I play on Twitter are secretly telling other people how to find these things by themselves and they, they start to find them by themselves. And, and I will I, I, I shamelessly now say that anyone who's watched or listened to this actually do the unscientific thing and actually like it. So it's not all the bad press. Please do. Good <laughs> comments. And yeah, so what is the your Twitter handle? It's microbiome digest. So it's like microbiome digest with an E, but I had to drop the E in the middle. Yeah. Because Twitter only has what is it, ten letters or so. So, but if you search for my name, Elizabeth with an S, big B I K, you would find me as well. There's only one person with my name, or there should be. <laughs> And uh, you, you, you would, you should be able to find me. And so, and, and again, you know, words of support are, are very welcomed, and I think it is true. Yes, quite often yes. We're quite private individuals. We don't like to say things out publicly, but maybe sometimes we should say things, some support publicly. Uh, yes. Not to get involved in any Twitter spats <laughs> or anything else. Don't do that, anyone listening. But just, you know, if there's a bit of support, put it out there and let others follow suit as well. Elizabeth, I think what you're doing is brilliant. You are so easy to talk to, and I cannot wait for the next conference that we're both <laughs> at. And uh, I'll remember it's red wine and a chocolate mocha cake. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. That would be much appreciated. It was lovely talking to you, Peter. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. Yes. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.